Good morning. That sound does sound okay? All right, good deal. All right, pray for technology. There we go. Always do that every day. Well, it's great to be back um, with you here this morning. Everybody sleep well? Pretty well? Good long night's sleep? You know, Friday evening is a really challenging time, isn't it? We come off of busy weeks and busy days, and, and most of the time we spend Friday evenings going home and sort of collapsing, at least I do. It's that getting ready for the weekend and the big sigh of relief that the week is over, um, and instead of being able to go home and sit with our family and put our feet up and relax, we all came here and, um, and sat and waded through some, some pretty heavy stuff. So thank you for, for hanging with me last night. Um, last night's talk was really the, the, the foundation on which we're going to build everything we do. If you weren't here, that's okay, because you're going to hear it kind of reemerging a little bit. But I just want to make sure that we are reminded of these first two keys that we talked about. You know, the image I wanted to share with you was of, of us walking around with these chains on. I really wished I could bring my chain. It was a really wonderful chain. The thing I love about it is when you drop it on the floor, it just makes this big crashing sound. Um, I was speaking a, a couple weeks ago on this topic, and a wonderful lady came up afterwards, and she was sharing her burden with me, and she said, you know, I'm really, I'm really carrying one of those chains. And after hearing you talk, I really feel like the Spirit is helping me let it go. I've got to let it go, because it's just, it's just got me in bondage. And I actually took it, and I handed it to her, and I said, just hold this for a minute. And she was shocked at how heavy it was. That's why I can't carry it with me. And as she held it, I said, okay, now just, just drop it. And when she dropped it, it made this big clanging noise on the floor. You know, I looked at her and I said, that's what it feels like to let these chains fall. Do you feel it? To get a little sense in your spirit that, ah, oh, that's a little bit of freedom. That felt really good. I'm tired of carrying these heavy chains. And she said, yeah, I felt it. I can, you know, you can physically feel them fall. And I think we can physically and certainly spiritually feel, feel these chains as all of a sudden we let them go. So we talked last night about the first two of seven that we're going to talk about. The first one is this chain we hold and we wear as the owner of the stuff around us. It's the enemy coming to us and saying, it really is yours. You really can take it with you. you know? it's, the, it's the picture of the, uh, the guy being baptized and he's completely underwater except his hand sticking up, holding his wallet. You seen that? No, not this, not this. Don't baptize this. I have a great little cartoon I love in my office, and it's a, it's a widow at, the, at a, her husband's funeral, and all of a sudden, out the door and window, all, all this golf clubs and all this stuff is flying out the window, and it's flying up to heaven, and she goes, oh my gosh, he is taking it with him. Well, we don't get to do that, you know. Billy Graham said there's no U-Haul trailers behind a hearse, right? Just, we leave it all here. So it is all his. And when we understand that dirt to dirt, that we not only, not only are stewards, but what I want, I, the, the spirit I want to get across to you is we get to be stewards. The call to be a steward is a gift because it sets us free. Oh, my goodness. I don't have to hold and control all of this. God's big enough, isn't he? Is God big enough to take care of all of this for me? Yeah. And he wants to. And he created us. He created us to be free and to live that kind of life, to let those chains drop. So we looked at ownership. 
and we looked at what it means to be a faithful steward. And I hope you had a, little, a couple of tools you could go away with where you could point to things in your life and say to the enemy, no more. You're not putting that on me anymore. I'm not going to walk around in this world pretending that I own my relationships or pretending that I own my health or pretending that I own my money or my assets. You've, you've given me that lie too long. I'm going to let it go. I'm going to let Jesus take care of it. And just be obedient. What was the other word? Joyful. Obedient and joyful as I live the life of a steward. The second key was what we talked about, these two kingdoms. Um, and I hope that that gave you sort of a mental picture. I'm trying to draw some mental pictures, some things you get your hands around. And it has blessed me a lot to think about this two kingdom way in which we live. I, um, I guess I'm going to walk to my pocket here, but uh, I brought my passport with me, right? Because I'm from the U.S., so I have to have my passport to get into Canada now. Um, I don't know, I just, just don't trust us anymore. I don't know what the deal is. But anyway, I have to have a passport to get into Canada now. Um, and that passport shows my citizenship. Wherever I go in the world, I'm a citizen of the United States. You're a citizen of Canada. We carry our passports with us. Well, we do the same thing. We identify with the kingdoms in which we live. And if we are children of the kingdom of God, we only have one passport. Because everything belongs to God. But, of course, we build the second kingdom. And last night we talked about it. I, I challenged you and I asked you if you could identify those things in your life that you believe are in that second kingdom. I'm going to continue to ask you to do that. Because I think that's the tool that God uses. I think that's a tool the Holy Spirit can use to help you identify and name things. Because when we name things, we can give them back to God. And we can begin again to tell the enemy no more. No more. I don't need to be the Lord over my own little kingdom anymore. I'm willing to step off my throne, walk away, and give it all back to Christ. We're going to talk a little this morning about the whole enterprise of giving, physically giving money and fundraising. And this whole two-kingdom view is a huge piece of what that looks like. So first of all, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, and I'm not going to ask for true confessions, but if you feel this morning like you just have to confess, I'll give you the opportunity. But were you able to find those things in your second kingdom? Were you able to identify those okay? Were you? Yeah? If you were have problems with it, ask your spouse. They've got the list. And if you can't get it from your spouse, ask your kids, because they know what they are. And sometimes that's not a bad exercise. I mean, really, could you imagine sitting down with your spouse and saying, let's talk about our second kingdom. What's the second kingdom we hold in our marriage? What are the things that we, as a couple, hold on to and claim as ours? Sit down with your kids and say, what, is it, what do you think mom and dad have as their second kingdom? It's quite an enlightening conversation. You know, it's one, one of the downfalls of, of speaking and teaching on this is that you then get held accountable for it. So, you know, to ask your kids. Where do you see in my life holding on to things? And they'll tell you. And then you have a conversation with you, don't you, about what they're doing and how they're doing. Bless your young kids that are getting married and help them start their married life out, understanding that they've got to be one kingdom people. It's really, a, hopefully, a, a great way to kind of get them started. But anyway, all of us should be able to identify with the help of others and with the, with the, with the illumination of the Holy Spirit and a good look in the mirror what, what's in that second kingdom. And we're going to continue to try to dismantle that and take it apart and walk away. 
That's the second key, to become one kingdom people. And then we have that kind of freedom. So I'm going to take a chance here and get a little audience participation. Um, from last night's session, those of you who are here, did you personally have any particular takeaway? Any, just one thing, even if it's a word or two or three words or whatever, where the Spirit touched your heart or your life last night um, in, in what was said and what was heard. There's always a big risk because if nobody says anything, it means that I bombed. So I'm going I'm to take a risk that there's somebody. Any, any, any one or two word takeaways from last night that you can share? Starting to sweat. Came as dirt and leaving as dirt. It's kind of an, it's quite an illustration, isn't it? Yeah, I, thank you. I, I appreciate that. I'm glad that it was a helpful one. By the way, I have to tell you that I use that wherever I go, and I don't always take my jar of dirt with me because sometimes I can't. And I have been known 10 minutes before I speak to be out in a parking lot, I'm not kidding you, behind bushes trying to find dirt. You know, and it's amazing how some cities, I was in, I was in Hong Kong about three weeks ago doing this, and I told the guy I was, I was speaking with, I said, oh, by the way, I just have to find some dirt for my jar. And he looked at me and goes, there's no dirt in Hong Kong. <laughs> and you know what? He's right. There is no dirt anywhere in this city. And we scrounged all over. We went into the church and found a planter that had a plant in it. And we're back there getting, anyway, charger, anyway, so I carry it with me now, but thank you. Yes, there's another one over here. Yes. Right. Good. So the idea that we're stewards first, and when we're stewards, we get called to lead, and it changes everything we do. And that's really going to be unpacked significantly the rest of the day today. So thank you for that. Yes. Yeah, isn't that great? So when we, when we, when we decide to be second kingdom builders, the reward we get is we get to be put in bondage. And we get chains put on us. Um, yeah, thank you. What else? Yes. Yeah. 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 And I don't know if you were able to follow me on that, but in terms of tracing back the things that cause us stress in our life and fear, how much that always is associated with those second kingdom things. Second kingdom things. The enemy loves it. How about my good table in the front? See, yesterday I told them that they're going to sit in the front again, which I love people to sit in the front. That I was going to call on them. So, Michelle, what did you learn yesterday? One word or a phrase. Yeah. The shackles of ownership. Yeah. Man, thank you. In a world that tells you that ownership is the key to happiness, right? Isn't it? I mean, the more you own, the happier you are. The more wealth you amass, um, the greater will be the pleasure in life. And, and the enemy is just laughing because he knows it's exactly the opposite. Exactly the opposite. Anything else? Yes. Yeah. Was that helpful to see that progression? <laughs> Good. Um, I, I'm a real, you know, visual person, and I just finally one day had to sit down and, and graph that out to try to see if I could figure out what this whole thing looks like. Um, and I, I'm glad it was helpful, because I think in one place, trying to capture all that theology uh, is sometimes challenging, but if it came across well, that's great. Thank you. Thank you. Anything else? Other thoughts? Yes. Wow, 
Isn't that true? How ridiculous it is to think that my control is better than God's. That I can take it from here. And that really was what we talked about in the sin of, of in the fall, wasn't it? It was Eve's understanding that if her eyes would be opened, she could actually make better decisions than the decisions that God had already made for them. Wow, how often do we do that? You know, we want to grab control. I was talking to somebody last night who said their job, their whole job is about controlling things. They control processes. They control, you know, that's their job. They're paid to do that. And how hard it is when in our, our, in our careers we're supposed to control everything and then we turn around and the rest of our lives we're supposed to give it all back to God. Very, very hard. If you're an engineer in here, you know how hard that is, right? That's, that's how you were designed is to control things. And God says, no, give it back to me. Great. Any last other thoughts before we go? Yes. Yeah. Good. The idea of, of battle. Um, you know, the whole thing about spiritual warfare, and we're going to talk a lot about spiritual warfare today, it plays differently in different denominations and different church groups, doesn't it? Um, some church groups just grab it immediately, and they're all talking about, yeah, the spiritual battle we're in. And I talk to some other groups, and it's just, you know, well, Martin Luther, when Martin Luther, he had a great phrase. He said, the first time he preached grace, that his congregation looked at him like a cow staring at a new gate. <laughs> Get that? Like a, okay, what's this? You know, kind of thing. And sometimes when we speak about spiritual warfare, I just get this dead silence out there. Um, and so I came out of, I come out of the uh, kind of Lutheran Presbyterian tradition, and we just don't talk about it. We don't talk about spiritual warfare, which is kind of weird because Luther was one of the great champions of spiritual warfare. <clears throat> but others can kind of get that. So I hope everybody here is somewhat comfortable with the idea that we are in the great battle. And in that battle, you know, we need to have the tools and all and understand it's there. I think just understanding that the battle is there is hugely important, isn't it? I mean, if the enemy can get us to deny that there's a battle going on at all, he's won a huge victory. Huge victory. Because then we don't prepare for it. Um, we don't ask the Spirit to give us the power to get through it. We don't understand what, you know, what, what's at stake, all the rest of that. So thank you. Yeah, battle language you're going to hear kind of throughout, because I think we are in a, a pretty significant battle. And we're in a battle where the victory's already been won. Isn't that, isn't that great? I'm going to steal a little bit from, the, from what I'm going to say later, but isn't it amazing that the spiritual battle we're in is marked by two things? We're in a battle where the, where the victory is already won, and the greatest thing we can do and in go into this battle is to surrender. How, how weird is that? I mean, you want to win the great battle, you surrender, because it's already been won. Thank you for that. Anything else? Okay, well, let's, let's move then from these first two keys. Um, Tom asked me if I would have a session specifically talking about this whole enterprise of fundraising. So that's what we're going to do first here this morning. And then the last three sessions today, we're going to go back in, and we're going to unpack keys three, four, five, six, and 7. And as we do, I'm going to have you continue to fill out that steward-leader plan so that you can have a takeaway. So this is a little bit of a sidestep, but I think it's going to bring up some pretty important issues and interesting issues. So let me start by asking, how many of you here today are currently involved in some aspect of fundraising? Okay, I'm looking at maybe a third, third to a half. Um, for the rest of you, have you ever been involved in some aspect of fundraising? Okay, so it's a pretty familiar topic to most all of us. Um, how many of you here right now are, are givers? Come on, get your hands up. You're all, there we go. All right, good, good. 
So we're, at least we're on that side of it as well, right? We'll talk to you in this, in this session, and I'm not going to take the whole time till 10 o'clock, so we'll get a little bit bigger of a break. Um, but this idea of becoming a sower for the kingdom. So this is the image I want to use. Anybody identify that real quickly? Close. Who? Who? Van Gogh. Very good. Yeah, it's Van Gogh's famous painting of the sower. Um, and so you'll see a little bit more why we use this. So we're going to talk a little bit about the theology of what it means to be a sower. And I want to just ask a couple questions, more audience participation here, so don't fall asleep on me. When you hear the term fundraising, what comes to mind? Not fun. What else? Here's another one. Got plenty of them, right? Good. What else? Harvesting? Harvesting. Good. You're, you're getting ahead of me. Thank you. <laughs> no, that's okay. That's good, though. Harvesting. Right. Other, other thoughts? Cookies. Absolutely. Yes. This is a good comment, so I'm going to come back here so I can hear it. Hi, you guys, folks. How are you doing back here? There's some room up here if you want to come join us. Anyway. Oh, you like that? That is good. Yeah, go ahead. Say it again. There you go. So you got to try to make it fun, make it enjoyable, because nobody likes to listen to a fundraiser. What else? Other words? Guilt. Amen. What? Scam. Yeah. Pressure. Say again. Okay. Opportunity. So some positive words for it. You have to what? There you go. Got to prepare the soil. <laughs> Say it again. Deadline. We got to raise a certain amount by a certain time, right? Which goes back to pressure. Not only pressure on people to give, but pressure on the people who are trying to get people to give. Okay? We all have perceptions of fundraising. We've all had experiences with it. Um, and it, it connotates probably both positive and negative words for it. What do you like about fundraising? Just a couple words. What do you like about it? What's great about it? The challenge. What? Okay. So relationships with the people? Great. What else? What do you like about it? I lost it in the laugh. Go ahead, say it again. <laughs> the first time I've heard fundraising compared to a colonoscopy, but probably not a bad analogy, you know? You know it's got to happen. You're glad when it's done. And hopefully, hopefully you're mostly asleep while it's going on, right? I like it. All right. I, got, I may have to do a graphic with that. Man, maybe not. What else do we like about it? Okay. What? So you get to you get to be a part of meeting in some kind of an opportunity. There's a goal there. Yes, yes. You shout it out. Okay. So if you're able to make it fun, you can surprise people, right? This really isn't that bad of a thing. Not quite like a colonoscopy, maybe. What do we dislike about it? Just a quick one word. Shout them out. What do we dislike about fundraising? 
Manipulation. Guilt trip. Expectations. Okay. Rejection. It's a big fear, isn't it? What else? Still very secular. Okay. Overall, in Edmonton or in Canada, what is what do you think is the general perception of the term fundraising? And, and maybe I'll be more specific. Among, among God's people, among the church in, in Canada, where you work and you operate and you live, what, what was the general perception of fundraising? Positive? So-so? Pretty negative? Very negative? What do you think? Positive? I have a positive vote? What? So-so. Okay. Necessary evil. Kind of across the board. Is that right? Okay. Uh, pastors, how many pastors do we have here? One, two, three, a few. Okay. Do your people just love it? Great, great, okay. So if we could get past the fundraising part of it, all the rest of it around, it's pretty exciting. And that's opportunity, and that's the goal, and that's all those other things that come along with it. Okay. Well, a fairly mixed bag, as is usually the case. So, a couple questions here in this theology. Which of these two pictures best describes your view of the role of the fundraiser? Um, this obviously is somewhat rhetorical, but we have a guy on the left that's harvesting and a guy on the right that's sowing. What do you think is the predominant image of somebody who raises money? Probably the harvester, wouldn't it be? We wouldn't normally associate a fundraiser with somebody who sows seed. We, have, we, we, we associate them with somebody who is gathering things in. Very much the case. So, there's three changes of perspective I am proposing that we need to have when we talk about this whole enterprise of fundraising. From harvester to sower, from transaction to journey, and you won't be surprised to learn from bondage to freedom. I always like to have some consistency. Some people may see it as redundancy. I like to be consistent, so you're going you're to hear it again. You can take it any way you want. Am I close enough? Yeah, here we go. Okay, so... Before, I, before we look at this 1 Corinthians verse, oh, I see, my clicker has a mind of its own. Come back. There you are. Perfect. Stop there. No, don't. No, no. Stop. 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 Okay. We have a little bit of a delay here. I want you to, um, <clears throat> so a little, a little story again about, about my journey getting here. We were talking about these two kingdoms, Right? I did fundraising for about 15 years trying to figure this whole thing out about is this just a secular way of, of raising money or is there a more biblical way of doing this. I worked at an organization called World Concern, International Relief and Development Organization, was a head of international fundraising for them. Um, and we had a photojournalist who was absolutely amazing. He actually now works for World Vision. Um, this guy, we would go to the third world country, we went to Ethiopia together into the feeding camps, and he would never take a picture of a person in, in need or struggling until he asked them permission. 
Other photojournalists would be across the street with these lenses, you know, about that big along and zooming in on people and taking thousands of pictures. He would walk up to somebody and said, is it okay if I take your picture? And if they said no, he wouldn't. If said yes, then he would back off very respectfully and he would take pictures. Well, he had these amazing pictures and he's, he's just got a huge reputation for being able to capture emotion in, in people's faces. The good news was is that anytime we wanted to do um, an appeal, we had these resources of these unbelievable photos. The bad news was we had these wonderful, incredible photos. And we had to ask the question, how do we use these in a way that's God-pleasing? Well, for a while, that wasn't a very big question. Because you use the picture that's going to spark the greatest emotion in somebody that's going to have them end up giving the biggest gift. That's the secular model, isn't it? You want to get people to move because when you, when you use direct mail, you get that much time for them to look at what you're doing. If they open the envelope, they're going to look at what's inside for about six to eight seconds. Six to eight seconds. And make a decision on what they're going to do with it. And if you, they open it up and there's a picture there and they go, oh my goodness, what is this? It draws them in and they have empathy and guilt and all those other things. And it doesn't really matter what as long as they read the darn letter, right? And respond. After a period of time, this kind of began to wear on us a little bit about, about how we do this in a way that, that's God-pleasing. And when I kind of constructed in my mind, I t the only way I could get around this was to kind of think about this two-kingdom. And I thought, okay, so if, if, if I'm living in a two-kingdom world, I have to believe that most of the people out there are probably living in a two-kingdom world. And if that's the case, it's likely that the majority of them are putting their finances and resources in their second kingdom. It's the place the enemy usually starts, because it's the easiest. We can identify it. It's our stuff. And he gets to us and says, no, really, that's yours. You own that. And so if we live and operate as though our money is over here, but the kingdom of God is over here, if that's the worldview we hold, then as a fundraiser, I come along, and what's my job? My job, anybody here an accountant of an accounting background? If so, you're, okay, you're going to like this. Okay, ready? So make sure I get this right. My job is to get people to to debit their kingdom and credit the kingdom of God. Is that right? I need them to make a transfer of assets from their kingdom into God's kingdom. Does that make sense? I've got to get it from there to here. Well, the world is telling us that all of life is about building our own kingdom. That's what it's all about. Build that kingdom. Get it as big and as powerful as you can get it because it gives you control and happiness and girls, you know, and everything else that you want, right? I mean, look at all the TV commercials, right? Um, and so we're building this second kingdom. And I come along as a fundraiser, and I've got to figure out how to get you to make your second kingdom smaller for the sake of a good cause over here. Wow. That's a real challenge, isn't it? But that's what we're up against if we're dealing with people with two kingdoms. So how do I do that? How do I get you to make that transfer of assets? Well, as somebody said earlier, we're very fortunate as Christians because we have guilt. Right? It's a great tool. And the other side of guilt is gratitude. Because that's really the same thing, isn't it? Shouldn't you be grateful 
for all that God's given you. And show that gratefulness by how much you give. And so when we had these pictures on the table in front of us, it was all about guilt and gratitude. It's either guilt that you have so much and that person doesn't give, or it's gratitude that you have that so much and that person doesn't so give. But it was the same thing. And so we employ all kinds of ways to get people to make that transfer of assets. We can, we can I'm going to step on some toes now, and I'm, I don't, I'm not absolutist about these things, but we can give naming opportunities. And the cool thing about a naming opportunity is that in some ways, I really don't decrease that, that second kingdom all that much. You may decrease the finances in it, but we increase the pride, right? It's a pretty good deal. I can give up a certain amount of money in my second kingdom, but I get my name on something, which builds my second kingdom. If we're not careful, we can do that. I can talk about tax advantages. In the United States, you know, you get, you, can, you get tax breaks when you give to nonprofit organizations. And so we can talk about the fact that, you know, really, you're really not decreasing your second kingdom all that much. Because if you do it right, you get some tax advantages back and it almost, almost evens out. Treasures in heaven, all kinds of other things that we had to use to get people to make this transfer of assets. Well, the bottom line is when I woke up one day and realized that my job for the rest of my life, if I was going to be in this profession, my job for the rest of my life was going to be to every single day go to work and try to figure out how is the best way I can get people to transfer these assets. And I thought, I don't want to do this anymore. This just isn't fun. Um, so what is the alternative? Well, the alternative is to be involved in God's process of helping all those people become one kingdom people. Because you don't have this challenge with one kingdom people, do you? If you've been in fundraising, you have from time to time come across somebody who's living pretty darn close to being a one kingdom person. Do you know what I'm talking about? You guys have been out there doing this? They blow you away. My little friend down in West Virginia was one of those people. That's why I wrote about her in one of my books. Because um, one kingdom people... You don't worry about transfer of assets because they all see it as God's anyway. And if you take secular techniques and try to apply them to a one kingdom person, they will blow you out of the water. Right? What do you mean put my name on something? Why would I put my name on something? Don't talk to me about tax benefits. Tell me what God wants you to do. Invite me to come alongside. Let me go pray about it. And I'll come back. And if that's what God wants me to do, I'm going to do it with obedience and with joy, because it's all his. After I spent some time with some one kingdom people, or people that were as close to it as, as I've ever seen, I came away thinking, we just need more of these, right? I just need more people like this. How do we help get more people whose heart is in the right place, who understands their relationship to their resources, who've given it all back to God, who are set free? If I could have about 10,000 of those people, I would have the greatest job in the world. I'm out of the greatest job in the world. Isn't that true? And if you've been out among these people, you know it. There's nothing more fun than sharing a vision and giving an invitation to somebody who really is living a one kingdom life. It's just pure joy. So what if, what if our job as fundraisers was not to make transfers of assets, but was to help two kingdom people on their journey of becoming one kingdom? And that was a turning point in my life that said, I think I can do that. I think I can do that for the rest of my life. 
So out of that came this little talk about the sower. And the verse that I use here is 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 9. Um, very challenging one, but brothers and brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Ouch. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For one says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Are you just not mere men? What after all is Apollos and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each task. No, excuse me, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. Listen to this. I planted the seed. Apollos watered it. But God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to their labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. Well, I love this verse because it reminds us of where our work stops and where total dependence on God begins. Now, I know that some of you here are gardeners. Is that right? And I'm a big gardener. My wife and I have a great big garden every year. And there is a really strange thing that happens in gardening or in, in any agricultural pursuit. We have all kinds of control over stuff that we need to do to get that garden ready, don't we? I mean, in, in the spring, we go out and we rototill it. We go out and we get you know, steer manure compost and we rototill it in. We prepare the soil. We go buy the best seeds we can find. We wait until the soil temperature is about right, which, you know, where we are is about early to mid-May. It may even be later than here, I assume, isn't it? You plant your gardens before the 1st of June? When do you plant your gardens? What? May 24. I love it. She's got the day that she plants her garden. Yeah. And we're probably only two weeks before you. We might plant it about the 8th or 10th. Where we are, the whole thing is when the, when the snow leaves the top of Mount Spokane, you can plant. That's sort of a a myth, because three days later it freezes and then you're dead. But anyway, um, so we, we prepare the soil, we test the soil, we buy the best seeds we can, we go out and we plant it, you know, that quarter of an inch deep or half an inch deep, and we put the seeds in carefully, and we cover it over, and we pat it down, and we put a little bit of water on it, and then we're done, right? We can keep the animals off of it, and we can do a few other things. We can pull weeds that are around there. But at that point in time, we lose all control. You can go out and you can pray over it. You can do a dance over it. You can do anything you want to, but you've lost control, haven't you? Something's got to happen in that ground way beyond what you're able to do for this little seed to sprout and it to come up, it to flourish. Once it's above ground, you can kind of start nurturing it, but it is God that makes it grow. Is that true? Right? It's a good reminder to us, a good agricultural metaphor that in a lot of places in our lives, God asks us to do certain things, but there's always that point where we have to stop and say, you know what, Lord? This is all, it's got to be yours. And every time we try to do what only God can do, we will mess things up. Right? That's, is that an amen? Every time we try to do what only God can and should do, we mess things up. Could you imagine if we went out every day and dug the seed up to see if it was growing? You know, see if we can do something, get it to go. No, it doesn't work that way. 
And all through our life, God takes us through certain places and he says, you do this, but you are going to have to trust me from this point on. Whenever we go beyond that and say, I trust you, Lord, but I think I'll do a little bit more. I think I'll take a little more control. I think I'll become more involved in this situation. Then he goes, okay, but it's not going to work. You got to trust me. Well, in the enterprise of fundraising, I believe this verse gives us a very clear definitive line. And I'm going to come back and talk about it here in a minute. So, let's talk a little bit about this first one, this idea of harvesters. Um, just south of Spokane, we have one of the biggest wheatland countries in the United States. You know, it's called the Palouse. And I know, you have a little bit of wheat up here? Just a little? So if I use a wheat metaphor, I'm, pretty, I'm in pretty good shape, aren't I? Okay. So we have the Palouse, which are the rolling hills of, you know, vast, vast wheat land. Probably maybe 10% the size of what you have, but we think it's pretty vast. So vast for us. Um, and the, the picture that I have in mind is every, what, August, you go down through the Palouse. I did it just a, about a month and a half ago. And there's these huge, great big harvesters, right? Big combines. And next to them are the great big trucks. And they're just going through the fields and they're pushing out grain and the trucks are getting filled up and they're taking it in and they're coming back empty and they've got this window that they need to harvest all of this wheat and they're out there working day and night harvesting hundreds of thousands of acres of wheat it's that harvester mentality that I was raised to raise money on and somebody said earlier it's being a harvester right so think about this work of fundraising from the mindset of a harvester first of all we control the process in harvesting we know what field we go to, we know what machines to take, we bring in the trucks, we harvest what we can harvest, we take control of this situation um, because we're harvesters. So the first thing is gaining access to the field. How do I gain access to the field? Well, I've got to know the farmer and I've got to talk that farmer into letting me get into his field and harvest. You're kind of getting the metaphor, right? What we're doing here? Um, and that's fine. I, I, I can talk to a lot of farmers and they may say, well, you can have this little piece of this field or you can have that little corner of that field. And I look out and I say, yeah, but your field's so big. You have so much grain here. Can I have, you know, how much more grain might I be able to harvest from this guy's field? And so we work and talk with him about trying to harvest more and harvest more. When we get there, we harvest aggressively because we have a short period of time, right? We want to get the harvest in. And the biggest thing is we've got to protect ours from other harvesters. There's other guys out there all over the place driving these combines around. And if you give me access to your field, i, I got to make sure and protect it and make sure that the guy down the street representing the hospital, the symphony, the orchestra, the seminary, the church, you know, all running around in their harvesters looking for fields, don't get into my field. Got to protect it. Um, and so we work without clear limits in the process. Uh, working with a sense of urgency, and, and back to this, this, this one before, this whole idea of harvesting comes out of a scarcity mentality. And God rescue us from a scarcity mentality. It goes like this, there aren't enough resources out there. There aren't enough resources in God's kingdom to fund all of God's work. And so we've all got to get out there and make sure we get our own. And by me getting my own means it might mean somebody else doesn't quite get what they want, but hey, God will take care of them. I'm going to get my own. And so we, we deal from this, the pie's not big enough mentality. And we go out, we harvest aggressively. We work with a sense of urgency. We focus on money over ministry. I'll talk more about that here in a minute. Um, and we trust our skills for the increase. 
People hire us to be good harvesters. People hire us to fill trucks with grain and send them back to the plant. Because back at the plant, the president and the program people and the board are all sitting there looking down the road waiting for the truck to come. Right? we got to have trucks full of grain or we're not going to be able to do the work that we do. And so they spend their whole time waiting and counting the trucks. And you're out there harvesting like mad. And you're hoping you can send enough grain in. And if not, then they send somebody back to you. And they say, you know, you're doing a good job, but there's not enough grain. We need more grain. you got to go talk to more farmers. you got to get a bigger field. All those kinds of things. Pressure, right? Does that ring true to anybody? Yeah, it rings true to all of us, doesn't it? Yes. Within the ministry itself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. We're gonna we're gonna get into that even more. Good comment. So you can kind of get this harvester mentality, right? You look at a job description of a chief development officer or a fundraiser, and it's a harvest job description. Go out there, find the people, harvest like mad, bring in the grain, um, and in the name of Jesus. Well, what's the opposite of that? Well, what if, what's that? Oh, um, what if we looked at this from a different perspective? Maybe, you know, from trying to take 1 Corinthians seriously. What would it mean if instead of being harvesters, we really saw our role as being sowers? Which is pretty close to the opposite, isn't it? In some sense of the whole agricultural process? Well, see, I believe that sowers understand their role in this process. First of all, our job is to do those things that God says we should do and do well. We should cultivate the soil. We should know our people. We should love our people. We should have relationships with our people. We should make sure that they understand what we're doing, that they have a passion for the ministry that we're doing. We do all these things that are responsibility to cultivate that soil. And then we sow abundantly, generously, and intentionally into the lives of our people. That is a fundamental shift in the understanding of my job in raising money for the kingdom of God. That all of a sudden, my role in your life as one of our donors, which is, by the way, I hope a word you never hear me use. I hate the word. I think we need to jettison it. Donors are people that give blood. Right? Isn't that right? You're a blood donor. But, you're not out, but to our ministry, you better be a partner. You better be a supporter and a partner with us in this ministry, or my theology is all messed up. So one of the things I would just say as a sidebar, jettison the word donor everywhere you use it. There are no donors in the kingdom of God. There are partners, God's people working together for God's good. So we sow abundantly into their lives. Well, you know, if I'm, if, 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 what's your name? Sandra. So if, if, if Sandra and her husband are, are supporters, are partners in my ministry, if I see her as somebody from whom I need something, it's a very different relationship than if I see her as somebody into whose life I can bring something. Wow. That's dramatically different, isn't it? And you're going to feel it from the first time I walk in the door and we sit down and talk together. You know when somebody wants something from you, don't you? 
How long does it take you in a conversation to figure out that this person really wants something from me out of this? Yeah. 10 seconds, 15 seconds? Versus somebody who really wants to sow into my life. And my friends, this goes way beyond fundraising, doesn't it? And this is a worldview of our whole life. Do we go through this life as harvesters or as sowers? Would the people around us say that when they experience us, that we're constantly just sowing richly into their life? Or would they say that we're kind of always looking for something? Wow. You know what it's like being around people who are always looking for something? That's kind of sucked the life out of you? Because every time you're around them, they have an agenda. Are we harvesters or sowers in the greater part of our life? And the third one, and this is really critical, is they got, we got seed to sow. How silly is it to say I'm going to go out and sow richly into Sandra's life when I've got nothing to sow? So how do we keep our seed bags full so that God can use us to sow richly into the lives of other people? And that is why what we're going to talk about for the next three sessions I think is so critical. And that is things like intimacy with God, an understanding of who we are, an understanding of relationships, an understanding of resources. We have to be prepared for this. I'm going to talk again about battle language here in a minute, but this, this is a huge spiritual battle. And the enemy will keep wanting us to go across that line and think about being a harvester and think about being a harvester. We have to have our seed bags full, which means we need to be in the word of God and we need to be in prayer and we need to be on the journey ourselves, don't we? I mean, we can't enter into somebody else's life and say, I want, I want to be used by God to help you in your journey to become a more faithful steward if I'm sitting on a bench on the side of my journey. Yesterday we were in the room over here and I was asked, uh, how do you help a church or a nonprofit organization change to a culture of generosity? And my first response was, well, you start with all the leaders being generous. Right? It just starts there. We have to have it in our spirit. And when, when it flows out of our spirit, then we've got some seed to give to somebody else. I can't sow what I don't have. So we have to keep our seed bags full. And the good thing is we know our limits in the process. We have patience to take the time that's needed. And I'm not going to go into a big fundraising seminar, but when we talk a lot about just about fundraising, you know, one of those big issues is are you willing to invest the time to build the relationships, to let God do what God does in the life of that person, and to bring the increase in God's good timing? The pressure that we feel for the immediate gift will almost always thwart that work that God is doing in another person's life. We'll get a short-term tip that won't be given with joy, and we'll have lost the opportunity to build a long-term relationship. Be patient. Let God do what God's going to do. We have to love our people. Um, and have to have faith to trust God for the increase. Now what we're doing is we're believing that God is a God of abundance, not a God of scarcity. That if I really trust God, he has enough in fact, we know this just by statistics. I mean, we can believe it by faith as well. But statistics say that right now, there is enough money in the portfolios and the pockets of people who profess to be Christians to fund every single church and nonprofit organization in the world, pressed down, shaken together, and overflowing. Isn't that amazing? We're not short of resources. Don't ever go out thinking there's not enough money out there to fund our ministry. There is more than enough money out there. It's sitting in the pockets and the portfolios of God's people. We're not short of funds, we're short of stewards. We're short of stewards. And if we go out thinking we're short of funds and focus on funds, we're gonna miss the boat. 
But if we go out believing that we just might be used by God to raise up a new generation of joyful, obedient stewards that would give abundantly, well, then I think we might be aligned, don't you? With what God would be doing in the world. That's really the, the key difference. So, it's coming. So from, from being a, a harvester to the mentality of being a sower, the second one is from transaction to journey. And we've already touched on some of this. But um, this idea that harvesters focus on, on momentary one-on-one -on -one transactions. And this is very endemic in, in our whole field. We have to watch for this. We see our work as a series of individual events, which we call asks, right? Invitations, whatever we might want to call them. Excuse me. And we view our, our supporters through this lens of this one-on-one -on -one transaction. When you go to most, well, when we go to most nonprofits and we look at ask them, how do you measure your fundraising program? Pretty straightforward. Average gift, number of gifts, um, frequency of giving, percentage of giving. We measure our performance based on the results of one-time or one-on-one transactions. And the challenge is we can begin then to see the people around us kind of as living ATM machines. Really. I mean, all I got to do is figure out the right code to press in and money comes out. And so my job as a fundraiser is to try to figure out what the code is for all the different people out there, make the one-on-one -on -one transaction, get the money out, fill my truck full of grain, and take it back. And fundraising becomes a series of one-on-one -on -one transactions that are all around the exchange of gifts. Now, you, you might say, well, that's what fundraising is. <laughs> I mean, fundraising is asking people to give, and they give, and you measure whether they give or not, and you go on from there. Well, that happens. The question is, what are we emphasizing? What are we measuring? How do we measure success in the whole fundraising scheme? And I'm going to suggest that this is not the way to do it. And therefore, we're tempted to treat relationships as means to an end. So again, my relationship with Sandra um, has one goal, one purpose, and that's to get a gift. Now, I'm going to try to be a good, have a good relationship and see her a lot and take her to dinner and, and put her name on wall, whatever it's going to take. But in the end, my purpose for this relationship is to get a gift. Um, and the question is, if God brings the increase, then, then what, am I up, what am I doing here? If I really believe that God give, the people give by the prompting of the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Do you ask people to pray over their giving decisions? We do, don't we? We, ask we wouldn't say, well, don't pray about this. Just, just write a check. Right? I'm not going to say that. We say, oh, yes, go away and pray about it. And then we come back, and two days later I call and I say, how are you doing? Anything else I can give you? And what are you doing here? And I, and I give her some more information and maybe give her another opportunity to give. And I just come rushing in where I ask the Holy Spirit to be and take over the whole thing again because i got to get a gift. We have to be careful about that. And it's all about this transfer of assets. i got to figure out how to get her to make that transfer. Sowers... I believe the heart of the sower, and this is all about our heart, because our heart changes our language and our attitudes. Sowers all are all focused on the idea of the journey. So, all supporters are on a journey to become more godly stewards. If I all of a sudden look at Sandra and say, I wonder what God is doing in her life. I wonder where she is on her journey 
of being a more one kingdom faithful steward. And then I pray. I say, Lord, can you use me today to enter into Sandra's life and to help her on her journey of being a more faithful steward? That is a very different prayer than, Lord, help me figure out how to get some money from Sandra. Isn't it? It's like night and day. If that's my heart, all of my language, all of my body language, my tone, my attitude, everything changes. And she will know it the minute I walk in the door. When I teach this, we do a lot of training of major gift officers. And inevitably, at this point, somebody says, okay, so what are the words? Do you have a script that I can use? Because it sounds really good. I don't know how to do this, though. So tell me, teach me what the words there are that I need to say. Um, and the whole point is, there aren't any words. The whole point is, when your heart changes, it just flows out, doesn't it? Sowers sow richly into the journeys of their supporters. And this is what we mean then by sowing. So now my prayer is, Lord, how can I sow into Sandra's life? What can I pray for her about? Um, what can I even challenge her on? Um, how can, what, what, is there material that I can send her? As I share about our ministry and I see her eyes light up and she gets really excited about something we're doing, how do I get her involved in that so that she can fulfill what God has put on her heart? You see, if we, if we go to our supporters, if I go to Sandra and believe she is passionate about something in my organization, something in the organization that I represent, and my job is to connect her with that, because if she gets connected with that, she gets really excited. She gets to give because the way that God created her to give. She has joy and obedience. We have funding. Everybody wins. But I've got to sow into her life to know that. And not just see her as a means to an end. So you see, sowing can mean asking and challenging. Stewardship. The idea that by sowing into people's lives, and I've been, every once in a while I get accused of this, so you mean we're not going to ask anybody for money anymore? I say, oh no. <laughs> we don't get off the hook. In fact, by sowing into somebody's life might mean I challenge them more than I would have in the old paradigm. Well, why would that be the case? Well, let's unpack that just for a minute. Every once in a while I get way ahead of myself, so make sure I'm doing it. Yeah, that's good. Um, sowers pray to be used by God to help each each. Supporter, move. There's more to that sentence, isn't there? I'll bet there is. Ah, further in their journey to become a more godly steward. So let me see if I can make this, this little point, because I think this is just so critical. Um, I believe that the prayer of somebody who wants to sow is a twofold prayer. As we go up to a front door and get ready to knock on the front door, it used to be, Lord, help us say the right thing so we can get a gift. I prayed that. Honest to goodness, anybody pray that? I prayed that. Lord, help us to get a good gift. We really need some money today, Lord. We really need this person to give us a gift. Can you help us get a big gift here? Um, forgive me, Lord. Every time I prayed that. It's like when we used to do door-to-door -door evangelism for a church. And the old joke was that the, the prayer you pray, they always, say, they always say, pray as you get to the front door, make sure and pray. And we always did say, pray, Lord, please don't let anybody be home. Please don't let anybody be home. <laughs> yeah. So we can pray. What are we praying about? Um, so here's the prayer that I encourage people to consider as they get ready to go in and meet with Sandra. Um, Lord, help me to be a blessing and to bring a blessing. Okay? Help me to be a blessing and to bring a blessing. So let me explain that. They're two very different things. 
The first one is, Lord, help me to be a blessing. That's pretty straightforward for everything that we've just said. When I leave here, I want Sandra to believe that her life has been blessed. That somewhere, she has been encouraged to become a more generous, joyful, faithful steward. That we've either prayed together, we've shared stories together about what God's doing in our life. She's been able to tell me what he's been doing in other places where she's practiced great stewardship. We've rejoiced in, in how God has blessed her and the things that she's doing. And by the time we're done, she says, I was so blessed by you being here. Um, I, I just feel like I've taken another step on my journey that God's calling me on. Now, first of all, would that not be a great way to spend your living? Wouldn't that be a great way to, to, to spend your life out helping people be blessed? I don't know if we train up an awful lot of development people to believe that they're just going to be an incredible blessing wherever they go. But that's what this is about. The second part is the one we can't miss. And that is to bring a blessing. And it's only at this point when we're steeped in this theology that this makes sense. Because if I were just to say this, say this outright at the beginning, you'd, you'd think, that sounds pretty weird. But here it goes. We were created um, to give. Do you believe that? We're created to bear the image of a God who just gives. Just gives. That's our heart. Joyful obedience. We are most like God when we are giving. Because God's so loved the world, right, that he gave. Giving is our DNA. Giving is the way that God created us. Generosity, the generous life, is, is just the whole life we were created for. It's not part of what we do. It's the totality of, of why we were created, to just give generously because we bear witness to a God who gives generously. God also gives us specific passions. If I go in around the room and ask you one or two things that you are absolutely passionate about in terms of how you give your money, we would all have, we have probably 150 different things in here, wouldn't we? And that's good because we get excited and passionate about something and when we align with that passion, we want to give. And when we give to what we're passionate about, we have a lot of joy, don't we? Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Do we really believe that? Do we really believe that when we go and talk with somebody, when Sandra ends up saying, you know, Scott, I went away and prayed about this, and we've decided that we're going to give a bigger gift than what we ever thought we would. We're going to have to struggle and figure out a way to do it, but that's what God put, us on, put on our hearts. And she writes me a very large check, and I take it back to my ministry and show them, and we think about what we can do with this money. Who's blessed in that process? Well, we'd all say the ministry's blessed. Because right? that's what we need. We needed the money to do some things. Now we're going to do ministry, send out missionaries, do all kinds of wonderful things. The ministry is wonderfully blessed, right? Am I blessed by the person that God used to help make this happen? Absolutely. I mean, it is one of the most joyful things. I, I speak to a lot of boards. And inevitably, when we talk to about a board of directors, when we're, like, we're going into a capital campaign, I always get at least a third of them that say, what do you think that they say when we talk about the board's involvement in a campaign? Any guesses? Just don't ask me to ask anybody for money. I'll support it. I'll pray about it. I'll cheer you on from the sidelines. Just don't ever ask me to go ask anybody for money. And my goal always with each one of those people in my mind is I'm thinking, I'm going to get them. Because somewhere in this campaign, they're going to go on an, on an ask and they're going to be really uncomfortable, and they're not going to want to be there, but they're going to have agreed to do it. And they're going to sit, and they're going to watch somebody talk about their passion for that ministry. Get excited about the vision. Go to prayer over what they should do, and give a 
bigger check than they ever thought that they would give and give it with such joy that you realize that you have just brought a blessing into those people's lives. And if they do it one time, they will want to do it again and again and again. It is just the coolest thing to go invite people to be aligned with their passion, to give something that God put on their heart for something they're passionate about, to serve the kingdom of God that allows them to be faithful stewards that brings obedience and joy into their life. I mean, who wouldn't want to do that the rest of their life? I'm recruiting all of you, by the way, to be fundraisers, every one of you. You all need to be involved in this. It's just the coolest thing in their life, okay? So if that's my role, then I understand that I can have the opportunity to bring a blessing into Sandra's life by challenging her with an opportunity to give in a way that aligns with her passion. You see it? So if you think that this is about not asking people, oh, it's not at all. It's about coming very aggressively and saying, look, I know that you love this ministry. I hear that you're passionate about our future. I want to give you an opportunity, two or three maybe opportunities, and invite you to come alongside us in, in this exciting adventure that our ministry is going on and ask you to go to God and say to God, Lord, what would you have me do as your steward with your resources for this ministry that you've given me a heart for? That's the transaction, isn't it? God's resources, God's ministry, all we have in this process is passion. It's all we bring to it. And the passion comes to us from God. You've given me a passion for that ministry. You've given resources. You have a ministry. What do you want me to do with it? Ask the owner. What do you want me to do with your resources? And then he comes back and tells you, and you go, oh my goodness. <laughs> really? That's a lot. But they're your resources. You are my capital P provider. You will take care of me no matter what. As long as I obey you, I'm going to trust you, and I am going to make those resources available to that ministry. I'm going to take a deep breath and do it. And when they make that decision, and you see the joy in their heart, I have never had anybody come back and say, God put on my heart to give you a bigger gift than I thought, and I hate it, and I'm angry about it, and I'm going to be stressed about it, but I'm going to do it anyway. It just doesn't happen, does it? People come back and they go, this is pretty amazing. I can't believe we're going to do this, but wow. And they give and they're just, they're just kind of, they're giddy about it. So in the whole giving transaction, the ministry is blessed. And I am blessed because I got the opportunity to come and connect Sandra's passion with what we're doing. But Sandra's the most blessed. I mean, her heart is just overflowing. And I have seen it so many times, and many of you have as well. Uh, I've had people thank me for the opportunity to give a bigger gift than they ever thought possible. And then they get to see what God does with it. We get to be a blessing by entering their life and sowing into their life, and we get to bring a blessing by helping them give. That makes sense? You okay with that? One last little thing. If, if, if you wonder about what that looks and feels like, I would say a good rule of thumb in this whole enterprise is always just switch, switch roles. Put yourself in that position because you all said you're givers, right? Every one of you are givers. So if I ask you to figure out, think about the one thing you're most passionate about in your giving, and if somebody representing that ministry or church came to you and gave you an awesome vision that you just thought was the greatest thing you'd ever heard and challenged you to go to God and pray about giving maybe the most significant gift you've ever given and you went and prayed and God put on your heart and said, I'll take care of you, let's go do this. 
and you came out of your prayer closet and you were so excited because you said, wow, we're going to give that kind of gift and you wrote that check and you gave it and you watched it go into that ministry and begin doing incredible things, how would you feel? That would just be the greatest thing in the world, wouldn't it? You would be blessed. You would just be filled with what God did through you. Well, that's going to be the same for everybody that you work with in this whole enterprise of fundraising. Kind of a different look, isn't it? A different feel to it? All right, I move on. I'll finish up here before too long. I get a little excited about this. Sorry. And then from bondage to freedom. And we've talked a lot about this. But again, it's from ownership to lordship. Um, we play the Lord over those things we choose to call our own. Uh, we can't serve both God and mammon, and yet we try. We could spend a lot of time unpacking that, by the way. That, that verse is so passed over for its power. It is, it is one of the most stunning verses, I believe, in all of Scripture. And if we ever really listen to what Jesus was really saying, it, it just shocks us. Because he says there really are two gods in this world. There's the real God, and there's the counterfeit God, and you will bow down to one of these two. And you can't love one and yet sort of kind of like the other one. Right? He doesn't say that. You'll either love one and kind of like the other one or kind of like one and no. What does he say? What are the words he uses? Hate. Despise. You will love one and hate the other. You will cling to one and despise the other one. He doesn't give us much leeway in all of that. You're either a lover of money or you're a lover of God. You're either sold out to the stuff of this world or you're sold out to Jesus Christ. Um, and we don't talk much in church about hating and despising the God of money. Kind of shocking to say it, isn't it? Kind of shock you when you hear it, when you hear it that way? I didn't say it. <laughs> you know, Jesus said it. And we need to take it seriously. So anyway, trying to make sure that we understand the power that, that, that is behind money and why he was so adamant that we need to choose day by day in every decision we make. Who's your Lord? Who is your Lord? Um, uh, they understand, we understand where our treasure is, where your heart will be also. Our hearts, our loyalties, our attentions, you know, are turned to those things we claim as owners. We talked about that yesterday. It really is, it really is true. The fruit of ownership is bondage. We talked about greed, envy, jealousy, pride. They're all linked to ownership when you think about it. They're all really tied in some sense to, to money. So are fear, anxiety, stress, and gnawing discontentment. We talked yesterday in here about how do we help people get out of debt. You know, some folks who work in the financial area around here have people that come to them all the time struggling because they really want to live a free life, but they are so in debt that they can't even free up enough money at the end of the month to try to give something to church. I mean, it's really hard for them to give a little bit to church because everything is going into paying their debt. Where do you start if I don't have enough money barely to even pay my debt, and yet I want to be a faithful steward? Where do you start? And we kind of came to the conclusion, you start by giving. You see, stewardship and capacity are not linked. You hear that? The life of the faithful steward and the capacity to give have absolutely no relationship whatsoever. This is not about your capacity to give in terms of financial terms. This is about the heart of the faithful steward. This is the widow's might, isn't it? Capacity of our heart to give, but not the capacity of our wallets to give. You want to get out of debt? Start giving. You want to get out of financial problems? Generate 
a generous heart and live generously toward others, and God will bless it and take care of you. Because the opposite is to continue to do this, right? Hang on. Hold on. Try to hold on to every dollar and make sure I can put it where I need to put it because I don't have anything left because I'm in a scarcity mentality. i got to hold on. And God says, no, you got to open up, and you got to give away, and you got to trust me. We are bound by everything we call our own. And then finally this idea of reflections on a, the two-kingdom reality in your work. What do we hold on to and control? Whoops, come back here. That should be surrendered. And that's back to this two-kingdom question. In your work, in your life, what do we hold on to that needs to be surrendered? Do you believe, this is my come-to-Jesus moment, do you believe that you are really called to sow and not harvest? I mean, can you really internalize that as somebody who's involved in fundraising, that my job is to go so richly into the lives of the people around me? Do you really believe that we're called to transformation and not transaction? That my role is to help all the people I minister to be, continue to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit and not just to go in and get one transaction from this person? Do we really believe that we are called to set people free? And this is kind of the coup de grace of the whole thing. Our jobs as people involved in development work, and I would say involved in ministry of any kind, I think this is our job as parents, and it's our job as people of a church and people in a community. Our job is to be used by God to help set people free. You see it? Because they're walking around in bondage. God's given us some keys, and we get to go into this world and announce and proclaim the freedom in Jesus Christ to the people around us. You don't have to live like this. I was in bondage once. I'm still in bondage. I'm on my way. I'm on my journey, but I'm getting more and more free every day. Let's walk in this thing together. I get asked a lot about how do you start a conversation with, with a, a supporter about this whole thing? And I say, ask them if you can share your story about what God's doing in your heart and in your life to help set you free and then invite them to to share in their story. Because we all have a story, don't we? Everybody in this room has a story of what God is doing in your life right now to help you become a more free, faithful, one kingdom steward. And you can help each other, and we can help each other. If so, what are the implications for the way you measure success? We talk a lot about that. The way you prepare each day and live out your calling. What are the implications for the place of faith and prayer in your plans and daily work? Where do we just need to stop and let God do what God does? And make sure we're faithful in doing what we do. As a result, how, how do you view your personal calling and your organizational mission? Nice last couple words here. First of all, it begins personally. It's all about our own personal transformation and keeping our seed bags full. But then it goes to our organization. It re requires us to cultivate a sowing culture. Ken asked yesterday about a culture in a community. How do we, how do we, how do we um, generate a culture of generosity in our family? Have you thought about that? with your spouse and your kids as you come together? How do, we, how, do, how, does, how do we help create a culture in our family where just being generous is just what we do, is who we are? And then from our family to our church, how do we have a church that just gives and is, is free to be open and generous? And how do we do it in our nonprofit organization? And how do we do it in our community? And then it just flows out from there. It starts with the personal, it goes organizational, and it ends up being missional. It includes development work as part of the mission, not just a means to accomplishing the mission. That's such a huge challenge that we face. I'm just going to say a word about it real quick, and 
We'll go on. Am I, am I doing okay? Oh, well, I got three minutes before we have tea time. I told you it was going to be done early, right? Um, see if this is true of, of organizations that you've worked in. Because this is what I faced when I first got into fundraising in a Christian environment. Where does ministry happen in this nonprofit? Well, ministry happens on the field where the missionaries are doing all this kind of thing. And ministry happens over here where we're taking care of the poor and we're feeding it. Ministry happens over here where we're doing evangelism and all the rest of it. Well, what about your fundraising department? Pfft. What about them? That's our necessary evil. We're glad they do what they do, but we're sure not, you know, we're glad we're not a part of it. And we're not even sure they're Christians down there, down the hall, but they're out there doing some good work. And they make ministry happen, so let's leave them alone. You know, turn our eyes away from the appeal letters. It's okay, we can live with that, because the money's coming in. What would it mean if we really embraced our development departments as an important piece of the ministry of what we do? Because we are out ministering to two kingdom people, helping them become one kingdom people. You see, I think all development work is ministry. I think we are ministers for the gospel of Jesus Christ every time we talk to anybody about this whole area of giving and finance and journey. Don't you? You see the ministry you're involved in? And if so, you need to prepare yourself not as fundraisers, but as ministers. And that's a very different thing. How you answer this question will determine the extent to which you can be used by God to build his kingdom in ways that are pleasing to him, bless his people, and bring him glory. And that's all we're going we're gonna to do here. So it's a paradigm shift. And I'm just I'm praying that you get a little, a little feel of this. Some of you that have been in the field for a while are back there going, amen, amen. This is exactly where we need to be. Others that might be in an old paradigm might be saying, wow, I've never looked at fundraising that way in my life. Um, and even if you're not in fundraising, I hope you get a sense of the joy that's available to each one of us when we are connected with God's work and truly let him lead us to be faithful stewards. It's really a wonderful way to spend your life in living. Um, I will take a couple of, any quick questions or comments or anything before we take a break? Thoughts, comments, questions? is isn't it yeah and we're gonna that's a big piece of what we're gonna talk about a little bit later but we really view all of life as an opportunity to enter into the journeys of other people around us and be used by God to help them become more faithful in what they're doing yeah other other thoughts before we break questions yes Let me broadcast. What's your name? Uh, my name is Joe. So you say, hi, Joe. <laughs> yes, there we go. <laughs> we just, we've just turned into a, a, a little uh, support group here. Yes. Um, it's more of like a, a quick story. Um, just this whole thing of uh, how God works in the heart and, and uh, this whole thing about um, serving God, mammon, and that. And there's a, a, a physiological connection to the things that know where you put your treasure where you put spend your money that kind of thing and what God's been um, <clears throat> just looking at our budget and that kind of thing and and it's just the little the little nips 
that take away, you know, a, a divine. And um, so you spend a little bit here, a little bit there. Usually my, my addiction is coffee. And so I, I showed up at a Tim Hortons at lunch, and I'm just about to get out of the car, and I just, like, had to do a, a, a hard stop. Like, I don't have any money. And um, there was a tremendous, like, God was like a cop. He's, I know he's not in the stick, Agnes, <laughs> yeah, but it was yeah. like he arrested me. And the freedom that came when you had to, like, surrender, and like, I can't do what I want to do. There was a tremendous liberty that came. Now you have time to spend with me. And so, like, mm -hmm. the next little bit of lunch, I just took the time to pray instead of doing what I've always automatically gone to do. There was a tremendous freedom. It was just a little taste yeah. of what happened in that moment. Cool. Thank you. Confess. Thank you. So poverty served you well in that moment. Cool. Thank you. All right. Well, we're just running a little bit over our time. A number of these issues are going to continue to emerge in the next three sessions as we finish up today. And so we'll be able to, if you have something on your heart or mind, it'll come back up. We can talk about it again. Um, but I think, Tom, how much, what do we have about 20, 30 minutes, half hour? Oh, sorry, Ken, I'll get out of your way. Thanks, Scott. The chains kind of fell off me as you were talking as a pastor. I realized I didn't have to carry some burden any longer, so thank you. Um, yeah, we're going to take a 15-minute break. Uh, grab a coffee, and uh, there's a table full of snacks there. I think maybe the best way is to go out through these double doors by the sound booth, and then you can circle right around and go by the uh, sound booth there. Take a look at uh, the books that are available. Need a p place to pray? There's a quiet spot over here. And then the uh, worship team will remind us in about uh, 15 minutes to start coming back in. So bless you.